Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name is Jojo. I'm a very grateful, very fortunate alcoholic. And I'm really and truly glad to be here this morning, and I'm so glad to see that there's so many people that came back for the last part of this meeting, and uh, I'd like to welcome you. And I hope that your conference this weekend has been nice as mine, because I've had a good time since I've been here. I've enjoyed the people. I've uh, ran into some people that lives in Los Angeles, and I'm just seeing them up here, you know, because that's how many meetings we have back there, and it's just real nice, and and running to some people that I've met here, uh, I've been coming up to Monterey now, probably uh, in this area, in the South Bay area, probably about four or five years, and it's it's just fantastic. Uh, People coming to me and said, um, I remember you, you know, so, and that's real nice. I just like to you know, say thank you for the the love and the warmth and the feelings that I have and the support, you know, that you give me. I personally like to thank you for that. I'd also like to thank the committee for asking me to come up again and what you're doing with me back up here again, I don't know. <laughs> but I guess God has something that I, you know, I can't deal with, so I'll, I guess I'll let you deal with it because he has me up here again, and that's just the way it's supposed to be. And... Uh, I saw some hands go up for the newcomers, and, and um, if you're new or if this is your first conference, I hope it's a, a fantastic um, situation that you'll never, ever forget, that, you, that will make you, I hope something is said this weekend or is read, or that you run into somebody and you guys get a chance to talk or you go home and read the big book or, or whatever, but I sure hope it keeps you coming back. Because Alcoholics Anonymous works. It works for an alcoholic when nothing else works. It will definitely help you to stay clean and sober. Now, what you do besides that is something that you will have to deal with, but Alcoholics Anonymous will deal with your drinking. <laughs> it will help you to stay sober. When all hell break loose, you'll be able to come back and say, you know what? I didn't drink. And I didn't use. Something's working in this program. And that's the mystery about this program, because people don't know how it works. They've been trying to figure that out for 50 years, how it works. And uh, I try not to get into that part of it, because I don't care how it works. All I care about is that it works. You know, that I don't drink and I don't use, and I keep coming back because I know that that's the key to some to my sobriety, you know. And I have to be grateful because Alcoholics Anonymous made it so. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it used to be like for me, what happened, and what it's like right now. <laughs> See, because that, that's where I'm at. That's where my sobriety is based on, is what's happening in my life today. What am I doing? What is recovery doing for me? Or, you know? And it's like, that's what you're here for. I mean, we all drink, and you want to know a little bit about how I drink, and if you don't, you're going to hear it anyway. <laughs> but what you really want to know is what have kept me sober? What have I done in this program 
that have made me want to keep coming back and have what you got, what you offer, what Alcoholics Anonymous offer. And I tell you in one word what it is. It's recovery. Recovery. You know, I'm one of those people who don't believe that they were born again in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe I was resurrected. <laughs> From the dead. You know that you got another chance here, and I believe that I came to you people at 23 years old, and I was all wiped out. 23 years old, and I had drank a long, hard 10 years. You know, long and hard. I had done a lot living in that 10 years, and I felt like I was 66 years old when I got here. You know, I had done everything that a young alcoholic woman could do. You think of it, and I done it. You know. And I started out at a very early age. Now, I'm one of those people who don't believe, who don't remember my first drink. <clears throat> but I remember my first drunk, you know, and I was about 13 years old. And um, I had went out with a group of girls, and, and someone dared me. I, you know, uh, betted me, you know, that I've always been a betting girl all my life. I bet you that you want to drink a glass of this vodka. You know, or gin, sequence gin, I think it was. Or if if it happens to have been corn liquor, you know, and then that's the, the top of the grade, like 150 proof, uh, I would have drank it down, like I did that gin. I drank a glass, a little bar glass of that gin down, and um, I don't remember what happened. You know, I went out immediately. Uh, and, and uh, the lights went out, you know. I don't know. I, I know we were at a drive-in movie, and that's it. And um, when I came to, I was at home the next morning. I was, you know, in my clothes, fully dressed, and I was at home. And, and I don't know how I got home or who brought me home or anything like that. And my, and my mom saying to me, you got drunk last night, huh? And, and, I, and, I, you know, I'm looking at her like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> you know. And uh, so later that evening, my girlfriend, my best, best girlfriend called me, you know. And uh, she said, ooh, Jojo, we sure had a good time last night. Let me tell you what you did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's the pattern of my drinking. People were always telling me what a good time I had, what I had done, and who I had done it with. And stuff like that. And I, I would ask, well, who are these people? You know? Where did they come from? You know? What did we do? She said, don't even ask. Don't, you don't even want to know. You know? And uh, there were a part of me that was a mystery to me, to my own self. It was such a mystery. Not to understand the disease of alcoholism, but to have it and to have to live with it and not knowing. And see, where I come from in my community... They don't talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't talk about you're an alcoholic and you need to go get some help. You need to be rehabilitated. None of that. I mean, if you're an alcoholic in my community, they stick a six-pack of beer in your hand and they say, that's what you are. You're supposed to drink. Here. <laughs> you're an alcoholic. Drink. You know? And uh, so consequently, there's a lot of people, as you can look around in this room, you know, and you can tell that the word ain't being spread too fast in my community. You know, we're dying. We are dying of this disease, and uh, and it's a real sad, it's a real shame. But I'm one of those people that was just fortunate. And I want to talk about 
how fortunate and what a miracle and how blessed I am to be sober and alcoholics anonymous because, you know, a lot of us don't make it, you know. And I have no idea where the yearning to come to Alcoholics Anonymous came from. The only thing that I can tell you that it had to be God sent. Because I had never been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never been anywhere where Alcoholics Anonymous was being spread. Somewhere in my drunkenness, somebody told me something about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have no conscious recollect of it. All I knew is that in 1975, I came to a point in my drinking and using that I just couldn't drink and use anymore. I had got to a point where I was drinking myself um, sober, and, and I was not sober. My head was sober, but my body was drunk. I just couldn't drink anymore. Uh, and, and every drug in the world I had taken, I was like a lizard. I, when anything came past my mouth, I just zipped out and got it. <laughs> Didn't matter what it was, either. You know, people talking about they're on the rocks today. I was on the rocks 15 years ago, you know, smoking out of water pipes. We called it cannabinol. You know, same difference. I don't believe nothing. All of it will get you addicted, and all, if you don't do something about it, it'll kill you. Simple as that. You know, and and my drinking and using, uh, I have a my you know my drug pattern is is just as worse as my drinking pattern because I have the kind of disease. See, I don't I don't well, I'm not one of those people who have a choice. I cannot tell my disease that you can't take no drugs. You have to just drink. Not me. <laughs> my disease don't care what you give it; it will react to it. Whatever it may be, and I will get just as crazy, I will get just as obnoxious, you know, I will pass out, I will fall out, or somebody is going to knock me out, you know. I'm going to do something to get myself into some type of bad situation because that's my drinking attitude, that's the type of personality I have. I like to cuss people out and tell, tell them what their mamas do for a living. <laughs> You know, when I'm drunk, you know, I do it today in sobriety, too. I, I have, you know, so you don't necessarily have to be drunk to act a fool, you know what I'm saying? But it's nice if you're sober enough to know what you're doing. When You know, and it's nice to know that if you're going to get knocked upside the head in sobriety, at least know who's doing it to you. That's a lot different than... Uh, where I come from, because there were more, lots of mornings that I would come to, and I would be all beat up. Oh, God, I would beat up. People would beat up, knock me upside my head, and kick me all around, and I didn't even know why or who had done it, and I would have to ask, I mean, well, what they beat me up for? You know, what did I do? And somebody said, you ran your mouth off too much. <laughs> so that's another habit of mine. You know, uh, I talk too much. I say things I don't have any business saying, and... Uh, a lot of times, to be honest with you, I don't care. You know, that's to be totally honest. With you. I don't care. You know, and, and somebody said, "Well, you need to try to learn how to care if you're going to save your ass." You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you need to learn how to protect yourself. You know, and uh, I, 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 I've been blessed. <laughs> I've been real blessed. Uh, I got to you people in a very humbling state of mind and body. Uh, I couldn't walk. I had drained myself. Uh, I had alcoholic paralysis. And I want to talk just a tiny bit about the physical disease of alcoholism because it gets real serious when you, you, uh, 
get to the stage of where I was. I uh, could not control my body functions, waist down, had absolutely no control. Um, I weighed about 85 pounds. I had lost a lot of weight, and most of it I was bloated from the poison of a wild Irish roll of Mad Dog 2020. And uh, I drank whatever came through. I'm not one of those people that had a lot of money that could go to the bars and, and drink Sleeping Seven or Chevalier Smartus or anything like that. I was uh, a real wild Irish girl's woman. <laughs> and, uh, and that kind of wine will definitely put you in a state of helplessness. <laughs> um, there was something inside of me, though, ever since I was a little girl that always wanted to be somebody, to do something with my life. I had the kind of dreams and aspirations that I guess most people have, but mine was so heavy that there were times when I would get loaded and I'd go off to the corner and I'd sit in a chair and I'd be thinking and meditating and people would come over and say, girl, you look like you were really in a heavy state of mind. Where are you at and what are you thinking? And I would say to them, it's too heavy for you. <laughs> you, you just wouldn't understand. And, and what I would be doing at that time is I would be dreaming and wishing and hoping. Dreaming, wishing, and hoping that I could do something good with my life, that I could do something constructive with my life instead of being an old, ragged-out slut. You know, and that's what I was. And it was kind of hard for me to tell my friends who were just like me, I want to get married. I want to have me a good husband. I want a house. I want kids. I want a good job with eighth grade dropout education. You know, it's kind of hard to tell them that you want a baby and you're in a gay relationship. That's real hard. They don't understand that kind of shit. You know what they say to you? You're crazy. Give Jojo another joint because something's wrong with her. <laughs> you know. But those were, those were my wishes, my dreams, and, and my hopes. Is that someday that I'd be able to get my life together before it was too late. Because I knew that I was on a downward hill. You know, I knew that it was just a matter of time before I died. And everybody else knew it. My family, my friends, they would say, girl, something bad's going to happen to you if you don't get it together. You know, and, and my poor mom, she would look at me with those pitiful eyes, never say a word, and just shake her head. If you ever want to feel like a piece of shit, have somebody do that to you. you know, shake their head, not open, you know, not open their mouth, and just look at you and just go, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> it, it was like total disgust, you know, and. Um, and I, and I come from a large family. There were nine kids. There were six girls and three boys, and I was the seventh child. So, I mean, I had all these people up above me, and, and they all thought that I should do something a little different with my life than what was happening, you know. And they would say things like, you know, you ought to do this, and you ought to do that, you know. And, and I couldn't do all of them things, and I had a younger sister. And, uh, you know, they would predict what her life would be like, and seriously enough, her, her life turned out to be like that. She became the young lady of the family, and she graduated from high school, and she went into the Navy. I mean, she'd done all the right things. Now, she also was as devious as I was. Now, I knew that, okay? She didn't have the disease of alcoholism, but the attitude and the personality was there. And, uh, but you know what it was? She was very discreetful, and I was not. That, you know, I, I 
I was an alcoholic, and, and it was like when I drank, I lost the world of care. I could not predict what I was going to say, where I was going to, you know, go, or what I was going to do. It was just like I just began to do the things that a normal alcoholic person does, you know, like getting up at 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning and having the disease on you so bad or the obsession that you need something to drink, and the liquor store is don't open until 6 or 7 o'clock. And you're walking the streets because you need something to drink and you don't have any money. And you're just looking for somebody or some after-hour John or some man to come through in his car who have a half pint of, uh, you know, like old crow. You know, or something like that. And he's out looking, you know, for some young woman. And, and she, he got what you want and you got what he want. And, and that's it. You meet a happy medium. You know, you get drunk and the man get what he want. You don't know what went down, so that's cool. <laughs> cool. I don't know what happened anyway. I got drunk, you know. I had the, the kind of disease that needed to be fed. You know, I, I, I would go stone absolutely crazy if I didn't get something to drink. You know, I would be ready to kill. I don't, those are the things that I don't want to forget about my drinking and my using. Those are the things that I haven't had the experience in the last... Ten years. And next Sunday, I'll have ten years of sobriety on this one. And it's a total blessing. Total blessing. You know, just haven't had to do it. And I don't consider myself lucky. I consider myself fortunate enough that the steps have been introduced in my life from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I put sobriety first. Sobriety first. I know that without sobriety, I cannot do anything. I will not make it. You know. You've been so good to me. I can never ever repay you back for what you've done to for me to my life. You know, have you transformed it into what it is? And that's the thing I want to talk about. I want to talk about my recovery stages and, and all of my wishes, my dreams, and my hopes and how they all have come true. That's why I'm here. I'm a walking, living testimony that Alcoholics Anonymous works. And I don't want to sound like a religious buff because I'm not. But when it comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, you bet I am. Yeah. Talk to anybody. And, and anybody that meet me within five minutes, you know that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I don't drink and I don't use, you know. That's the first thing my new friends learn from me. And if you want to be my friend after them, fine. We can go on with this uh, companionship. But if you can't deal with that and you're a drinker and you user and you can't deal with me, have a nice day. <laughs> See you later. I have to go. That's just the way I am. And I have a lot of non-alcoholic friends. I have a lot of non-alcoholic friends because I, you know, I thought, I don't care what you do. Just don't ask me to do it. You know, and consequently, I've, I've gained some friends that respect the fact that I don't drink and they, I don't use and they will say you can't have none of that cake that's rum in it. You know, that's the kind of friends I have in my life today. Or they will say, Jojo, you, you don't mind, uh, when you come over to my house if, if I serve a little alcohol, do you? No, I don't mind. That's your house. When you come to mine. <laughs> that's my house. Yeah. And, and and we have the kind of mutual relationship that I've always wanted to have with other people. You know. I got sober, clean and sober, November the 3rd of 1975. And... and 
the winter of that year of 1974 to 75 is when I had my roughest, roughest drinking episodes. And I went into a uh, three or four month binge. And I came out of it February 14th, 1975. That's Saturday night. It was sweethearts night. And I was all alone in my mom's house. And I was on the couch and I came to, it seemed like about 12 or 1 o'clock at night, but I don't really know what time it was, to be honest with you. I came to out of DT's. And I was having a hard time. I had woke up in my own filth. My mom was in her bed, and she was passed out drunk. And I ran in there out of a moment of fear, and I put my arms around this woman. And my mom weighed about 260 pounds. And I told her I was sorry that I hadn't made anything out of myself that she could be proud of. I was 23 years old, and I was dying, absolutely dying. And uh, my mom didn't hear a word I said. She was passed out drunk. And... Uh, I remember crying out to God that night to help me because I didn't want to die a drunken woman like that. I said, if you just let me get sober, if you just help me, um, I don't want to die like this. You know, because I had been brought up in a Baptist religious background and, and I had equated some of the relig religious beliefs with dying. And I knew that if I died that night that I'd never make it to heaven. Yeah, as simple as that. And, um. Uh, I blacked out or passed out or whatever I did that night, and the next morning I came to, it was February the 15th, it was a Sunday morning, I came down the steps, and I could feel the breeze go up my back as I heard the words form in my head, and it says, I know why you can't stop drinking, you an alcoholic. And by the time I hit the bottom steps, I screamed out in agony and pain and relief, I know why I can't stop drinking, I'm an alcoholic. And for the first time in my life, I knew that I was an alcoholic. My family came out of the walls. They came out and they said, well, I went across and I picked up the telephone and I said, I'm calling for some help. And my family came out and they said, put that phone down. Don't call anybody telling them that you're an alcoholic disgracing us. <laughs> now, I had just gotten out of jail a week before for 502 and I didn't own no car, no driver's license. <laughs> down drunk in the snow and I had lost my glasses. I'm one of you blind people that if I can't have my glasses, I can't see. I was walking around with squinched eyes. And, uh, you know, and when you, when you, when you, if you got the kind of vision I have, when you're out of focus, you're out of the world. I mean, it's like nobody understands where you're coming from. And uh, I remember cussing them all out that morning. And telling them that if they touched that telephone, I'd kill every one of them. And somebody heard the sincerity of my voice. <laughs> I believe it was my mom. And she said, leave her alone. And I made the phone call. And I called long distance operator, which was zero. That's the best I could do. And I told that lady on the other end. I said, my name is Jojo. I'm an alcoholic. I need some help. Can you get some help for me? And at that time, I didn't even know that they had an Alcoholics Anonymous in my hometown, and I'm from Lima, Ohio. And uh, anyway, they called somebody, and a, and a lady came out and took me. I made a twice-up call on me later that evening, and I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, February the 16th, 1975. I walked in that meeting with a lid of weed in my pocket and about $220, and um, I remember asking, will they take my money? And the lady said, no, we don't want your money. We uh, just want to know if you want to stay sober. And I said, I don't know. I want to go in and see what this is all about. 
and I went into that meeting, and and you hear people talk about, they know that they've arrived, they know that there's an answer for them. Well, I believe in that, because when I got to my first meeting that Monday night, I knew that these people had an answer for me. I knew that they could make me become a lady. I knew that they could teach me how to drink like a lady. <laughs> and I wasn't going anywhere until they did, too. Because that was another dream of mine, is I always wanted to become a lady. Always. And I never, ever did anything like a lady all my life till I got sober. But prior to that, I mean, I never drank like a lady. I never acted like one. I was always asshole in the crowd. Always. <laughs> Why I acted that way, I'd never have the answer. You know, but it was like I was always it. That night, this lady who was to become my sponsor took me, that Sunday night, took me to the Board of Health. And I knew all about the Board of Health. I had been there several times. And I used to carry a disease. And I'm not talking about the common cold. <laughs> but I used to go to Board of Health because the shots were free. And I went up there and I asked this lady because I was not acquainted with people of her status and I asked her when she had the keys she pulled out keys from her pocketbook and opened up the back door and I said what do you do you clean up this place she said no honey come on in and we went in and sat down in the office and finally she told me that this was her office and I said you lying <laughs> this ain't your office she says okay she never did try to bite that tongue back but we sit down and we talk and for the first time in my entire life I was able to be real with another human being I told this woman about all my deep dark secrets that I said I'd carry to my grave and I'd never let another human being know I told her about I remember I I, you know, you look at me today and you think, my gosh, she's got it. She's a pretty young woman or she looks halfway decent. But I want you to know that alcoholism had me so ugly. My eyes were sunken into the back of my head. You could see the skeleton um, expression in my face. I weighed 85 pounds. My teeth was, these are not my teeth. <laughs> And that was something that I clung, I clung on to, you know, because I always wanted to look good, always, you know, and I was not looking good. My skin was darker than what it is because I don't know if white folks do it, but black folks change color. <laughs> I mean, alcohol makes us look real funny. <laughs> darker than what we are, you know, and sores develop and all sorts of stuff, and and, uh, and I had sores all over me, and I had gray, big, my skin used to have pimples, you know, and they were not pimples, uh, 
but but they were very um, very ugly, gray big lumps in my face and palsy and stuff where I just couldn't take care of my my skin or my hygiene or anything. I didn't own a toothbrush when I got sober, and they only cost probably 29 cents at that time, you know. But I didn't have any of those those hygiene things going for me. And talking to this lady and, and going to my first meeting that next night, I knew that I wanted what Alcoholics Anonymous had. I knew I wanted it, and I was willing to go to any lens. And for the first nine months of my sobriety, I went to a meeting as often as I could. And uh, I worked in the streets, and they would come down on the corner, and they would pick me up. There was a guy named Dick that would come 45 miles out of his way to pick me up on my working corner and take me to an AA meeting and drop me back off and said, I'll see you Thursday night. You know, they said, we don't care what you do. Just don't drink and don't use. You know, you do what you have to do. And I was into the act of survival at that time because I didn't know I didn't have any workable skills. I, didn't, I could not get a job. I couldn't function on a job anyhow at that point. And uh, so these people allowed me. They never said to me, I'm sorry, honey, but you're still a prostitute and Alcoholics Anonymous won't let you come in here. Thank God that they didn't do that because I never would have made it. For the first nine months of my getting introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, I worked the streets. And I would come to you people, and you were so kind, you were so nice, and you were so humble. I would come to you, and I would say, Alcoholics Anonymous works. I'm making money now. <laughs> I had the nerve to up my price and got it. I wasn't getting drunk to earn my money away. I was paying bills. I could not believe it. I could not believe it. But my sponsor with her kind, loving self, she would pat me on my back and she'd say, keep coming back, JoJo, one day your life will change. I was still smoking dope, too, because it's important that you know that. That's why I don't celebrate my birthday in February. I celebrate my birthday in November. Because it took nine months of coming around this program, and I finally made a decision that I wanted what you people had more than anything in the world, and I was willing to go to any less. And I smoked my last joint, November the 2nd of 1975, and I haven't found it necessary since to put another joint in my mouth. You know. And that... That's what Alcoholics Anonymous offers you. A way of honesty. And, and honesty have always been my basic policy and my sobriety. You know. I've gained so much since I've gotten here. I came to you people in a bebop hat and blue jeans and boots talking out the side of my neck. And I got clean and sober November the 3rd of 1975. And when I was six months clean and sober, I met a young man at the coffee pot in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he had about two and a half years of sobriety. And... Um, he asked me if I wanted to ride home, and I looked at him like it was totally insane. And uh, and I said, no, thank you. I Really, I got smarter than that. And he said something about, well, I don't push myself on young ladies today. And I looked at him, and I looked at myself, and, and I wondered if he were talking to me. And uh, <laughs> young lady. I hadn't been called a young lady in so long. It felt so good. I was astounded. <laughs> And uh, 
about a, a week later or so, I, I saw him in another meeting, and we sat together. He said I put my hands on his knees, but I don't believe it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was living with another lady at this time, and uh, we were sharing a place because I didn't have a place to stay, and it was a good friend of his. And he uh, called up and asked if I would stay home that evening and uh, play cards. And I was not into missing meetings for any reasons. And I said, no, thank you. I'm going to me a meeting. And uh, they came over right before I got ready to go to meet. And they all begged and whined. And said, we're all sober. We'll help you. You know, and I stayed there. And uh, the man asked me if I wanted a pizza. And they called up Pizza Man. And he pulled out a wad of money like this. And uh, I said, you know, the lights went on. <laughs> went on. I said, aha. All right. And uh, the pizza man came and he said, keep the change. I said, God damn, this boy got class. <laughs> then we got to listen to some jazz and I, I discovered that he, he loved jazz and I love jazz. And I said, no, that's. So finally I asked him, I said, well, what are you doing Friday night? You know, and he said, now, why don't you come and take me to the movies? You know, and he said something about, I don't take women anywhere unless I get emotionally involved. And I said, emotionally involved, what does that mean? You just want to go to bed and have sex? You know? And uh, he looked at me real stupid, and he said, yeah. I said, well, that ain't no problem. <laughs> Friday and he took me to a movie and for 10 years now we've been trying to decide what we saw at that movie because <laughs> I really don't know I have never been able to figure out what it was we went and saw because he had on some little tight blue pants <laughs> and I asked him uh he got ready. He was such a gentleman. He said, I'll take you home. And I said, I said, how old are you? He says, I'm 26. I said, well, I'm 23. Do you live alone? He said, yeah. So let's go over to your pad. So we went over to his house, and there was a note on the door. As I walked through the front door, there was a note. I picked the note up, opened it up, read it. It says, hi, so-and-so. I was here to see you. wasn't home. So-and-so. I said, well, just tell her. Don't even come by here anymore as I walked through the door. <laughs> I took care of that little matter. <laughs> Powerful woman. <laughs> and uh, I, w I would like to tell you that life has been peaches and cream ever since then. But that ain't true. <laughs> it was just the beginning for me. But I want to talk about my first year of sobriety, especially for the new people here, because I want you to know what it was like. I personally, and this is my own opinion, think the first year of sobriety is the hardest. I personally think that it was for me. Because for the first, I experienced some spiritual awakenings that I don't ever want to forget. The first six months of my sobriety, I could not sleep. I had insomnia. I remember sleeping one whole night through, sleeping for nine and a half hours and waking up and couldn't believe that I had slept that long. It took nine months for me to be able to sit down and have breakfast, eggs and bacon and glass of milk. That was a spiritual awakening for me.
to be able to sit down and smell that food and not get full up, but be able to be hungry enough to sit down here and eat. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep when I got sober. I couldn't do anything. I was just in a lot of pain. I was very lonely. I was a very desperate woman. And I needed people in my life, you know. And I was going to any lengths to make sure that I was not alone, you know. And when I met Jerome, it was just like for companionship. It, it was like it, it helped me to grow. After we were together um, for a while, my first year AA birthday came up. And, uh, well, first of all, there's a part where he was not supposed to mess with any newcomer woman, so I never told him how long I was sober. He asked me how long you've been around. And I had been around Alcoholics Anonymous for a year and a half. I told him, I've been around for a year and a half. <laughs> and then he discovered that I was only six months clean and sober, and he went totally berserk. <laughs> and we've been together for so long, he finally told me the only reason I didn't leave you because I thought you'd get drunk. <laughs> I said, honey, the only reason you stayed because you knew that you'd get drunk if you didn't stay. <laughs> I remember my first birthday, you know, having 364 days of sobriety and waiting for the 365th to come in. I remember I had come through this uh, recovery home, and I went over to that house to take a cake and to have dinner with them, and they were saying, don't go in the kitchen. And I said, why? They wouldn't let me go in the kitchen. And finally, when dinner time came, they let me go in the kitchen. And there was a gray big bouquet of red roses sitting in the middle of the table. And they said, those are yours. I said, who bought me those? They said, read the little uh, card that was on there. And I read the card and the, and the words were, to the most precious lady in my life, I wish this was a ring instead. Love, Jerome. And I said, I mean, no man had ever bought me any roses. I sat there at that table and I cried for at least half an hour. <laughs> at least a half an hour. And then everybody around the table were crying. It was like, <laughs> it was incredible, you know. And um, I went and picked Jerome up because he was going to school at that time. And I went and picked him up. And I said, oh, Jerome, thank you so much. Nobody, no man has ever been that good to me. He has never done those things for me. You know, it was incredible because I was the kind of woman that, that you beat up and you said, do this, do that. And, and, you know, it was like that's the way it was. You know, they never called me a lady. You know, they, they didn't call me by my name often, you know. And so to have someone treat me like that, it was incredible. And uh, a year later, we got married. We walked down the aisles of the church. I had on a white gown. <laughs> Silk, white underwear. Cinderella slippers. slippers. And I said, wow, I mean, you should have saw me walking down the aisles of that church. You know, it was like the guy that gave me away uh, is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, uh, and, and he was just as nervous as I was, you know. And... Um, Jerome and I had not spoke to each other that morning. We were angry at each other. <laughs> we had went to this little Jewish delicatessen, and they had baked our cake, and, and the cake wasn't ready, and Jerome went stone crazy in front of everybody. So I told him to just get away from me and go to the church, and if I was going to be at the church at 1 o'clock, and if he showed up, we would get married, and if he didn't, it was all right. <laughs> and I, I went on to the church, and... Um, 
And we got married, and uh, it was fantastic. January 14th of 1978, and it's been incredible. We've had an incredible journey ever since then. And I can't have children physically. I could not have children. And um, a year later, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I told Jerome I want a baby. So yeah, what you want me to do about it? <laughs> And, um, and I told him, I said, let's adopt one. And, uh, he, you know, he was sleeping tired, and he couldn't even believe I was talking like this in the middle of the night. He said, yeah, okay, anything. He turned over and went back to sleep. And the next morning, I got up, and I called Los Angeles Adoption Center, and I told him that we were two alcoholics, and we wanted a baby. <laughs> He said, uh, would you like to come down? <laughs> so we went down for our interviews and stuff, and they, and they sent off our arrest records. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember Jerome's story, but I want to talk to Jerome been to the nut house a couple of times, you know. So he's my Camarilla nut house retread. He's been picked up for plain ordinary drunk 36 times. The man is insane. And of course me, I've been in every county jail in every city and every town that i ever been in, you know, arranging from defrauding the innkeeper to drugs. So I've been busted and soliciting the police, you know. <laughs> so I've been in, in quite a few jails and I've done this and I've done that, you know, still stolen cars and wrecked them and stuff like that. And they sent for our records and this poor lady, this poor social worker, she looked at us with... Real empathy. <laughs> and she said, don't call us. We'll call you if you're ever approved. So we went about the business of living, you know. And in the meantime, uh, my life fell apart. Life began to, to take a real hold on me. I began to experience death with uh, my sister and brother and uh, mom and, and everybody, you know. And I'm one of those people who like to talk about what God doesn't leave you with. And he won't leave you empty. You know, because when one hand's empty, he's, uh, he's filling up the other one. And that's the thing that you have to believe in alcoholics not, especially if you knew. Because there are times in the beginning of our sobriety that we just think we can't make it. That it's not going to work for us. You know, it worked for those other people, but it won't work for us. Don't drink five minutes before the miracle happened. You'll never know what it'll be like unless you stay sober. Because I want you to know that 15 months later that we got a letter. And in that letter from the adoption center, it says you have been approved for a child. And when the right little child... When the right little child comes, we'll contact you. Nine months later... <laughs> was at home and I was at work and the phone rang and the social worker asked him said we have a little boy you might be interested in he was born September 5th 1979 and we'd like for you to go look at him and my husband said she went on to say some other things but he just lost total consciousness <laughs> because his birthday is September the 5th of 1970 I mean of 1947 47 I think he was born and, and we went out 
sit down into this beautiful, wonderful white lady's house, and she had my little baby out there, and she had another little Mexican baby, and she, the baby was so pretty. And this little boy couldn't walk. He was about 11 months old. And um, and we got in there, and, and the lady told us to sit down. She said, uh, well, our social worker had told us, we don't want you to scare the baby because he's not, never been exposed to black people. Um, <laughs> so let's see if this can happen on a natural basis, you know. And so we sit down in some recliners, and he was running around for a few minutes, and I looked at him. And she had him dressed so beautifully. He was just in a little blue and white outfit. And uh, finally, you know, he noticed that we were there. And he crawled over to me as fast as he could, just like a frog on all fours. And he crawled up into my arms as if to say, well, God damn, where you been? <laughs> and he reached out for Jerome. And uh, he was 11 months old. And uh, the next week we went home. We, we got a chance to take that little boy home. And we've been mommy and daddy ever since. And I'd like for you to meet my son. He's six years old today. And he's not over there. <laughs> anyway, he's a fantastic little boy. I was able to name him. Uh, I was able to do everything that a mother does with a child. I was able to see him take his first steps. I was able to see him take cut his first tooth. I was able to hear him say his first words. It's like God waited. That little boy was for me. And God waited before he could do any of those things until I could hear him as the first mama. And it's been fantastic because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for my life. Has given me, you know... Everything I ever wanted. You know, I, and I'm still married to the same man after being with him for ten years. You know, that, that's another miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous because we've tried everything in the world to, to get rid of each other. <laughs> we fought, you know, and, and we've cussed each other out. And my husband said every, about every two years we have the real big one. And that, that big one came this year at the 50th convention. <laughs> we were down here all crazy and insane and, and absolutely incredible. And God was so good in his infinite wisdom that he sent our friends from Spain who are family counselors. And they took us to lunch. <laughs> and they said, we charge for this shit. <laughs> And we were able to get the right concept back and focus back in on us once again. But I think the thing that really saved us was our son, because we went to dinner that evening. And, uh, you know, out of the mouths of babe, and we were sitting up at dinner in, in a French restaurant in Montreal, Canada, and this little boy said, Mom, he said, I forgot to tell you because you were asleep last night, but I had a real serious talk with my dad. I told my dad it shouldn't act like that. So you guys should just become friends. You're just confused right now. <laughs> and I asked Jerome, I said, Jerome, how do you feel? He said, I feel good and I feel shitty. And I said, so do I. And, uh, and, and he says, well, go on. You know, make up. Become friends. <laughs> and, and we've become friends once again. And it's, it's fantastic because... You know, how alcoholics anonymous work is beyond me, but I just want you to know that it works, you know. The thing that I like to get ready to end with, because it's going on 12 o'clock, and that's the thing that I, I like to talk about, and that's my mom. My mom. That night that I crawled in bed back in 
February 14th of 1975 and, and told my mom that I was sorry I never made anything out of myself that she could be proud of. When I was turned over on this program, I called my mom up on a Sunday morning and I told her that I was four years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She had never met Jerome and um, she wanted to talk to Jerome and he was in the kitchen and they talked for a few minutes and uh, when I got back on the phone, we talked about the weather for a minute and then when I got ready to hang up, I heard some clicking in, in the phone and she said, did you get it? And I said, did I get what? She said, did you get that great big kiss I sent you? She says, I want you to know, I think you turned out to be one of the best kids I got. And she said, I, I love you. You know, and for the first time in my life, I heard my mom tell me she loved me. I was 27 years old. And I never, ever in my life heard my, that woman tell me she loved me. And today I know the reason, because we ended that relationship that day. My mom died three days later um, from a heart attack withdrawn from alcoholism. And uh, it was like she validated my life. She gave me a reason. I knew then that I could never drink again. I could never use again, no matter what that went down in my life. Because all my life I sought that woman's approval, and I finally got it three days before she died. You know, and you just don't blow anything like that. I knew that all my prayers had been answered, and no matter what went down in sobriety that I could handle it, I could make it. And see, I've had a lot of shit happen to me in sobriety, and I've been in a lot of pain. I know what it's like to be in intense pain, where you be in so much pain you can't even feel the food in your stomach. You eat because you know your physical body has to go on. I know the kind of pain where you can't sleep and you can't move and you can't, you can't do anything. All you can do is pray and ask God to help you walk through the pain that you're in. And going to meetings and talking to people does not help. It doesn't for me. I'm one of those people who have to live my pain out. I can't talk it out. And today I realize that I don't want to talk it out. Because what happens through the pain for me is double the amount of joy that I receive. It increases the happiness and the joy in my life. Make a commitment to life, newcomers. Give your life to us. If you're tired of fucking with it, you don't have to. <laughs> Give it to us. We will put you into the 12 steps of living. And you will watch your own self materialize right here in this program. We will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. But you have to be the willing participant. We can't do it for you. Not the willingness. You have to make a commitment that no matter what goes down in your life, you won't drink and you won't use. That's the commitment. That you're here to stay. This is an eternity program as far as I'm concerned. I'm here to stay. I want what you people have, and I wanted it for the last 10 years, more than I wanted anything in my life. And what has happened for me, and as a result, is that I've got everything that a normal human being could have who could be happy with it. You know, and sometimes I'm ungrateful. And then when I sit down and I think about, I'm 33 years old, I'm sober 10 years I got to jump on a lot of things. How could I not be grateful? Yeah. I owe my life to you. And I like to, there's a poem that I like to end with. And it was a friend of mine's poem. 
who passed away a couple of months ago. And on his uh, memoriam, it's, it's on the back of it. It was his poem that he used to say every time he spoke. And uh, I just like, his birthday is going to be on the 11th of November. I'm going to miss him. He would have been 12 years sober. And I just like to, and this is for the newcomers. If you knew, listen to this very carefully. It might tell you why you're here. For me, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem, and it's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. T'was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it was scarcely worth his while to waste time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, ten, then two, only two. Two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a Carolinian angel sings. The music ceased, the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? He held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, who'll make it two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and gone and gone, said he. We do not quite understand. The people cheered, but some of them cried, we, we do not quite understand. What changed this worse? Swiftly came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin, as auction cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A game, no, a, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine. A game, and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he's going, and he's almost gone. But the master comes, and a foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Thank you, and have a blessed morning. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.